Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Have you had a better night's sleep? Uh, a little bit. Good. Woke up, had to pee at 4am and then couldn't get back to sleep, so... Oh dear. Made notes. <laughs> uh, you didn't, didn't finish off the Aquara's multiple, did you? No, I, I knew better than to try reading that. I did want to go to sleep, but uh, yeah, I knew that would just get me all, <laughs> you know, adrenalized. Really? Wow. Oh, yeah. It's exciting. Exciting stuff. <laughs> no, I have to, if I want to put myself to sleep with reading, I have to read an autobiography or something like that that's going to put me to sleep. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Especially ones that start linearly so they talk about the grandparents and the forefathers <laughs> well, i'm halfway through reading one of anais nin's uh diaries at the moment it's been my nighttime reading for the last few weeks now that's why you're awake you're raring to go <laughs> <laughs> no no there's far far uh too little uh sexy stuff in it for no, okay. that it's mostly just ranting about what a prick henry miller is um, <laughs> you want to get start by getting Jan to maybe introduce himself to the listeners? Yes, Jan, introduce yourself to the listeners, please. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this is Jan. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll do a better lead in. Uh, yeah, this is Jan, uh, Jan Rousseau. So we've known each other now for, I don't know, 20 years, mate, something like that. Um, we worked together at the Shell Company, uh, started off in Queensland and then uh, worked their way up and uh, eventually I left and Jan stuck around and I think you're pretty much running the joint towards the end. Uh, then went across the Spotless and uh, came across the company called Damstra and maybe you can fill us in on on what happened from there, Jan. Yeah, no, no thanks, Jan. So, uh, Executive uh, Chairman of Damstra, uh, stock codes ETC. Uh, we listed on the ASX uh, last year, so uh, about a year ago, and uh, have a number of great institutional uh, uh, shareholders. I mean, the history of Damstra, it's uh, a product uh, that was actually developed by Christian, our CEO, and uh, his father oh, some 17 years ago in uh, Hunter Valley in Queensland, and uh, was around... Uh, uh, collecting data of people they had in their business. We had about five or six hundred uh, people. These people wanted to know who is this person, what are their qualifications, where have they worked, uh, are they properly registered? And then basically that product was an internal product, but uh, got uh, Extrata Commons asked if they could use it. And Extrata actually saw a client today under the name of uh, Glencore. Uh, and fast forward to uh, where we are today, where we've got offices all across Australia, New Zealand, uh, US um, uh, and, and the UK. In terms of uh, how I came across Damstra, as Tony said, I worked at Shell for a long time, but had a lot of M&A and operational and HSE experience. And when I was working uh, in a company called Skilled, uh, they got acquired uh, twice by different companies, but uh, a number of years ago, Christian and I had the uh, great opportunity to do an MBO and buy the company now. And then when we bought the company, it was uh, one office in Singleton in the Hunter Valley with 18 staff. And we fast forward now, we've um, got, uh, I think, eight offices and about 150 staff. So the business has really transformed itself uh, since uh, we've acquired it, uh, raised pre-IPO money, IPO, and we continue to grow fairly well. 
That's yeah, the yeah. short history of Dan Yeah, thanks, mate. I, um, I I sold you short during my intro. I, I forgot to mention that you were based in Singapore with Shell and were handling M&A work for pretty much half the globe. So a lot of experience in the M&A sector. So, so Damstra oh, is basically... <laughs> I thought you were just saying you sold Damstra share short. I sold you no, short. No, no, no. I thought, oh, that's, no, a, sold... that's, that's a bit of a mean thing to say at the beginning of an interview, Tony. <laughs> I sold Yarn's career short. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, so in terms of Damstra, so you're basically focusing on mining and maybe some manufacturing companies and and uh, tracking their HR and staff members as they move around the comp- uh, move around their, their mine sites, is that right? Yeah, it's sort of a bit broad. That's part of it, uh, Tony, a bit broader. We, uh, we tend to have a sweet spot in mining, construction, uh, utilities and telecommunications. So just to give you a name, uh, NBN, a uh, great client of ours, uh, John Holland, uh, Langer Rourke, uh, Glencore, uh, Newmont Mining, uh, Hunter Water, uh, just to name a few. Where, where our sweet spot really is is uh, where you have uh, industrial locations where compliance and HSC and monitoring and managing workers on site is a big issue. So for all those clients uh, I just mentioned, if someone got injured on a site, Etc. It could cause an operation to stop, or work cover, or work safe would investigate that organisation. So, we're about one is uh, getting all the workers uh, compliance information, registration, verifying that on our core Danstra database, and then linking it into other technology modules, which are uh, access control, how you get in and out of the site, uh, learning management, uh, they have online learning. Uh, also using paperless forms uh, on site and then integrating that as one offer in terms of what a worker actually does on a site. So one is, are they qualified and do they have the uh, relevant verifications, registrations and training to go on site? If they have it, they can't get on site. Uh, to giving them access uh, into the site via our hardware but also our software and then using software tools on site to make their uh, site operations easier. So we have just launched a new product, which I tell you you're aware of, you know, Ciber Detection, uh, where we also have linked to our hardware, someone going on site. Uh, we do facial recognition and then also uh, uh, test their temperature. And uh, facial recognition means you are the person that can go on site. Uh, and also the temperatures beneath uh, 36.2 degrees or around that. And we just actually had a client in the US, uh, a school, mind you, a new vertical for us, that's actually taken uh, that particular product. Yeah, I guess I guess I can see the applications with COVID. Yeah, thanks. That's a very good summary of what you do. I, I wonder, um, our listeners might be interested too on the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on with uh, the history of Damstra. So let me just take you back. So Damstra was basically a small company, probably family run in the Hunter. Uh, and you got involved uh, uh, when you came across the, the management when you were at Skilled and you said you did an MBO, so management buyout. Uh, just take me through that process. Was that uh, you guys individually raising funds to buy out the company? How did that work? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when we bought the company, it must be five, six years ago. I mean, technology... Yeah, there were a few Bill Weber companies in Australia that were still new. So uh, the acquirer program at the time had no interest in technology uh, or what the product actually did. But uh, I had seen when the business was um, sitting under myself uh, organisationally that 
this technology has real applications. And I at Shell, like you, Tony, uh, had a big HSC and compliance background, and I could see the application in industry. So we we just saw an opportunity uh, where they were thinking, what do we do with this business? And and really, they couldn't digest it because. Christian, the CEO, who's now based in Denver, the US, uh, had all the intellectual property, the client relationships, uh, and then we just made them uh, uh, an offer for uh, an offer for the business, uh, took on some liabilities which uh, they were concerned about, and uh, uh, just had a, a number of small investors uh, uh, support us, and then uh, we acquired the company from there. So it was your your classic, and I think we've all seen it, you know. Some companies shouldn't be in larger companies, and then they've split out, uh, and then management owns them. Uh, the drive that management and the staff have for being independent, smaller, and more agile uh, unleashes uh, unleashes people to drive the business harder. And I think at the same time, by luck or design, this uh, whole issue of uh, compliance, HSC, and now COVID and control has given us. Uh, a good uh, industry thematic tailwind which we're riding on. Yeah, I think I think it was the case that uh, I know when I stepped out of Shell and went to work at Coles Meyer, the level of of health, safety, and environment and compliance was a light year behind Shell. So I think working in an industry where people could blow up or get get killed easily really really had a uh, concentrated the focus on HS and E at, uh, at Shell. So I can see why you, you saw the application for that and other industries which weren't quite as devoted to it as an oil company was. So so you, you're part of the buyout, I guess. Did you then leave the, the, the Spotless, the company that originally owned the, the uh, owned Amstra, or did you stay on there? Yeah, I, I had, I mean, it was an interesting personal inflection point because the business was only, for me, it was just I, I became chairman of the company, but not in an executive sense. But uh, we started to get real exponential growth and then we had... a a number of clients and partners saying, why don't you go to the US? And then uh, when we decided as uh, myself and a board, we put a board in place, uh, then why don't we go to the US? But we'd learned from other companies, Australian companies, if you try to just set up an office and employ some people but don't understand the DNA, don't understand the product's not gonna fail, so we'll just more than likely fail. And I think companies that have been successful have put one of the founders or a senior person over there and we decided Christian would go over to the States and he took his family and then that's when I came in uh, to full-time and becoming executive chairman. Uh, at, at the same time, we did raise uh, additional capital, uh, what people call pre-IPO money, uh, because we were growing well uh, in Australia and obviously uh, actually generating uh, positive operating cash and uh, and EBITDA, uh, which is unusual for a SaaS-based IT company. So we were living off uh, our own means, but to accelerate, accelerate that growth, we, we needed additional capital. And then we had a number of uh, investors who were approaching us, and then we brought on Elliston Capital, uh, Allian Capital, uh, and Regal Funds Management. Uh, and that gave us additional capital to do some small bolt-on acquisitions, uh, but also to accelerate our growth. And actually, I think all our shareholders are still uh, shareholders today uh, in the enlisted environment. So so raising capital was uh, part of the story before IPO. And then when we IPO, we raised additional capital uh, to con- continue that uh, accelerated growth. So, so the capital you raised was really to, to grow the company, to fund acquisitions and to fund expansion overseas. Is that right? 
Yeah, correct. No, correct. Uh, and same thing for the IPO, uh, essentially. Yeah. 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 So, so just, um, I just want to drill down into that a bit further because it's, it's fascinating and it's probably an area that most people don't get exposure to. So <clears throat> you're operating a company, it's growing fast. Do people come knocking on your door wanting to invest or, or how do you get on the radar of the fund managers? Do you, do you go out and actively start to court them or how does that happen? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a whole... And when people read articles about VC funds investing companies, yes, there is a market in Australia for that where you can raise money. There's also a bunch of investors, and Elliston is a good case in point, and so is Regal, where they're obviously large fund managers who have you know large funds that look at Australian equities or international equities, but they also have uh, uh, pre-IPO funds uh where they particularly target companies uh pre-ipo and they tend to be in their small cap market uh high net worth individuals would also have access to these opportunities investing uh in in conjunction with these people like one of our investors allium capital uh anyway you know a guy called uh foggy uh, he was an investor in their fund and then they asked could, uh, as a high net worth could he also come in the pre-IPO race so it, it is a market that does exist that people can get access to but you really need to be connected to the specialist fund managers or investment banks uh, that are scouring these opportunities. So did you approach the investment banks or did they approach you how does it work? Oh, I think for us, we had a, as much as we know, when the IPO did use Morgan Stanley, uh, which was unusual since Morgan Stanley are such a large investment bank and a global brand name that they wanted to actually support us. And they'd been supporting us informally for a number of years of uh, yarn, how should you structure the company, what's your growth aspirations, what's your CVP, what's your market. And then and then we said, and we said oh, we might like, like to raise some capital. And, and, they, and they actually uh, introduced us to... Uh, uh, four people, and all of those four people were the ones in, that invested in the company. So, so we didn't do a, uh, a very wide search. They just introduced us uh, uh, verbally. We developed uh, the relevant materials, just like a small prospectus. Uh, they uh, you know, drilled down in terms of the financials, the fanatics of the team. Uh, we put a price on the company, and there was some negotiation about that, and uh, all of them uh, invested. But it's interesting going through that journey, which is different to a, a prospectus where investors don't normally have the chance to deal with uh, management executives and, and owners. Uh, uh, they really spend a lot of time doing their DD. And, and one, I think, they look at, you know, what industry you're playing in, you know, what's the size of the potential market uh, and is your product uniquely positioned uh, uh, in that market? And they're really looking for industries where they, people talk about TAM, you know, the addressable market. Is the market big? Uh, and is it growing? And can you play in that market? Uh, and can the product deliver in terms of that market? I think... The other thing which they spend a lot of time on uh, is the team. You know, do they like the CEO? Do they like the management? And do they have a belief that uh, uh, management can actually execute the vision uh, they're saying? I mean, to the extent I, I had a chat uh, to one of the uh, investors who's still invested today, and uh, during that process, I said, "How many people do you, do you see? Do you see?" You? He said he would review. Uh, between 150 and 200 companies a year wow. that come across his desk, and then he yeah. said, "And then he said, uh, second meeting uh, is about five percent." 
and then investing is like two percent two percent so you may look at 200 companies during a year and they only invest in uh, one to three so so they do apply a lot of rigor uh, and uh, they've done it so many times before when they see something they they jump on it pretty quickly and the thing about these people too is once they do their dd they, they're high conviction investors they're there they're there to support you and they'll move quickly yeah, that's very interesting. Let me let me just step back a bit and just ask: Why did you seek capital rather than raise uh, debt or or take on debt uh, when you were looking to grow? Oh, I didn't want to be uh, constricted by the covenants and risk of a bank. While mm-hmm. we were profitable, uh, there's all you know. We we actually did have a little bit of debt with uh, Westpac for our leasing facility, but but that's a minor issue. We, uh, I was always concerned that if something goes wrong in a business, uh, and, and it may happen, uh, and if you breach your covenants, you're beholden to uh, the bank. So we did have a discussion, do, do we raise debt? And it's unusual for IT companies to raise debt because most of them uh, aren't profitable. So why are banks going to loan, uh, loan to you? We could have raised right. it uh, in the material sense, but capital was less risky. Uh, and also... Uh, for us, it was important uh, journey that we've been through is when you're small and when you want to um, IPO, one of the things is uh, the markets have got to say, uh, is this company credible, apart from its base performance? But they also look at how it's been run from the governance, management, and who are the other shareholders being. So, so actually part of bringing names on like Elliston um, and Regal, which you know very well-known fund managers, uh, if they're on your shareholder register when you actually IPO, uh, it actually gives you credibility that oh, the, the you know these serious fund managers have, have invested uh, and they continue to uh, support Damstra. So obviously, when you go to the market, uh, there's actually a positive uh, reception. And also, uh, I think we were going through a, a high growth journey while those investors had no board seat uh, and were treated like all other shareholders. You know, getting their informed advice, getting their guidance on how the company should run, how it's positioned, how investors would perceive it, uh, was also part of the journey too. So it just wasn't about the money. It was about the uh, soft benefits. And I must admit, all the investors that we brought on pre-IPO uh, were, were of great assistance. And, and I think the testament to the point, they're all still on our share registry uh, as we speak today. Yeah, so it almost sounds like it was a two-way process that you were selecting them just as much as they were selecting you. Yeah, I think that's no, no, that's uh, that's, uh, that's part of the process. I mean, we, we, I didn't mention, it, but we did have one other uh, fund manager that um, wanted to uh, uh, be part of the race and we declined their investment uh, because they wanted uh, draconian. Uh, from my perspective anyway, access rights and ability to influence management where we wanted a different type of relationship. So so you're right, Tony, they wanted us and uh, it was about uh, us selecting someone who, who we thought could have actually add value to the company rather than just raising the money. Mm, that's a good point because, uh, I mean, uh, by taking on investments and uh, investors, you're, uh, you're ceding some sort of control or some part of control of the company, aren't you really? That must be an issue for you. Well, this is of my experience. You know, governance is a big issue when, when you're a chairman and when you go enlisted. But we ran the company from day one like a public company, even though it was a small private company. So we had a you know, shareholders agreement, executive agreements, and so all shareholders. But if you owned you know one percent of the company or ten percent of the company, were treated the same. So so we even when we were private, uh, you know, we had quarterly reports to our investors, we had, had investor sessions, 
Uh, we had monthly board meetings. So those investors, they came in, knew they couldn't get a board seat, uh, couldn't vote as a block uh, to prevent management from what they're doing, but were protected uh, by the shareholders, group, a la, you know, Damster couldn't go out and buy a movie cinema chain tomorrow, you know, had to stay within our core business, uh, et cetera. So, so, so yeah, so, so the relationship was also legally uh, very defined uh, right. in terms of what worked for us and uh, actually what worked for the investors. Right, yeah, I can see that. That's good. So l- let me just ask a question then. You're talking to investors, and this is probably the, the one of the core questions I have about software as a service companies, which is which is what you are, is, is valuation. Uh, I, I always struggle to value SAAS companies on, on the sort of metrics I use when I'm looking to invest in a an ASX listed company. So, so how do you, how did they, and how do you value Damstra uh, as a business? No, I think yeah, it's, it's an interesting question. This, I mean, the old standard EBITDA operating cash flow DCF model. Uh, people still apply that, uh, but what they're looking for, and then you see the, you see the very simple metric of uh, EB sales, so a multiple of revenue. I mean, what these investors are looking for is a, a, a multiple of revenue. And then in the SaaS-based business, and there's lots of metrics out there in the marketplace, you can be anywhere between four and ten times uh, your revenue. And then you get these outliers, be it uh, Alassian, uh, WiseTech, uh, Afterpay, the names you're invested in. We trade on massive multiples, you know, 20 to 40 in some cases, 50 revenue, but where, where the investors uh, are looking at is they, they say to themselves, can this SaaS-based company grow exponentially uh, and can they go global uh, and can that revenue growth be sustainable in the out years and then down the track that will uh, convert into uh, high operating cash flow uh, and high profitability. So they tend still to use the DCF, but obviously put the DCF out uh, to the out years, but are really looking for that accelerated growth. So if you look at those names I raised, uh, Afterpay, Wise Tech, Alassian, that's a thematic that all investors are looking for. An Australian company grows exponentially and has a software product that can go global. And I think that's the reason why people do get you know, excited by SaaS-based uh, companies, but they can see that there could be a, a little Australian success story that can actually get a global footprint and get global scale. Uh, and even the other day, you know, looking at Kogan, albeit more Australian SaaS-based company, you know, Kogan's worth five times more than Maya uh, as of as of today, uh, because what they see is these businesses tend to be capital light. You spend your capital on your developers, your people to build new products, and because it's software, you can put it up in the cloud. Use something like AWS to have instances all across the world. Uh, you develop your product, and it's not a capital-heavy uh, investment. So they always look at things like leverage. Um, so while I talk about uh, sales multiple. There's a couple other things they do look at. They do look at your gross margin. What are you selling your product for? Uh, are you making, you know, 60, 70, 80% GM? If you're making 40, I think they'll steer away from you. And then what they also want to see is a trend that while you're growing, that your gross margin is growing, and then your cash that you're generating is also increasing. So, so they look at the high level, but they peel back. Uh, some other metrics where they want to see trends going the right way before they're making uh, uh, an investment decision. So it's more than just 
uh, a sales multiple. It's the other trends uh, underneath it. But I'll be quite honest, if a SaaS-based business is you know growing at 50% a year uh, and has gross margins of in excess of 70% and you're starting to generating operating cash, investors will be excited by that. Uh, and what the investors are trying to do is they're always, from my perspective, what I've seen is they're, they're trying to find the next one. You know, what is the next afterpay? What is the mm-hmm. next zip? You know, what is the next Atlassian uh, at the end of the day? Yeah, I guess uh, I guess um, I, I, that's that's great. Thank you. Uh, I guess I can get my mind around what you're saying. They're trying to get in early for a growth company, but uh, how do they how do they factor in the risk that when uh, not necessarily your company, but when a a SaaS company goes worldwide and it gets big, that it's not going to be competed out of the market by, you know, in the case of Afterpay, the visas of the world who obviously, uh, you know, will retaliate at some stage. So isn't there an element of risk in in having your profit at the end of the discounted cash flow and not during it? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple of dynamics to, to that. So it's, a, it's a good question. Well, one is I'll use the example of Akinex. Uh, a lot of People also see that in play, and one of our board members, Simon Yenkin, uh, he, he's on he's on our board, and he was one of the original investors in Akinex, and uh, based in North America, and, and was on Akinex for 15 years. They were valued on a, uh, a sales multiple, and the market was questioning operating cash. Uh, they grew, had a global footprint, and what happened? Oracle bought them. Hmm. So investors always have in their mind that sometimes you have this footprint where a large player like Akinex in that case, Oracle, then acquired them. And when they acquired them, they acquired them for a multiple of, uh, I think, 10, 11 times uh, revenue. And the market was shocked. How can a company that's not making any money get that hmm. type of valuation? But Oracle hmm. were buying it, obviously, for strategic reasons. But I think another point too, Tony, was you're a portfolio investor and, and you manage risk. When I speak to these fund managers, they have these companies like us in their portfolio and and they'll have a lot of them uh, you know and uh, they'll, they'll they'll take a portfolio approach where hopefully they can have you know a, an Alassian or an Akinex or an Afterpay in there which you know shoots the lights out and for some of these investors you know they're, 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 you know a 20 30 40 50 banger you know and that's a banger as an old term of how much they've made and they'll have a number that fall by the wayside that limber along but um, don't go anywhere. So they uh, they take a, take that type of approach. And they also, while I did say enterprise versus sales, they also look very strongly at the cash. Is the company generating cash? Uh, and is it close? Uh, and the reason why they're doing that, that if the company's generating base operating cash, they know it won't go into liquidation and fall over. There's some substance beneath the company. So, uh, you know, the high... The high spec uh, early startups, which are losing lots of cash, tends to be in the domain of the VC funds uh, or you know real startup funds that will take that I'd call punt methodology of investment. The investors we have uh, are looking uh, for more established companies like us, which uh, we're generating operating cash and having good growth. So their risk would be that hey, if we don't grow, dams are still going okay, but if we do grow, anything could happen. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, yeah, that's that's an interesting discussion. Let me just sort of step aside a bit and, and talk to you about the mechanics of what you do, because again, it's great to have you on the line and we can get a uh, an insight into you know what's behind the curtain, so to speak, for a, a company. T- tell me what it's like to be uh, the chairman of a listed company. What do you do? I love it. I love it. So it's executive chairman. So it's 
different to a normal chairman. And an executive chairman, it's uh, in, in IT companies, misfit uh, uh, more often. I mean, afterpay and that structure. Uh, in the States, and you, you, you see the president, chairman, CEO being the same person. So that does happen. So, so as chairman, there's, there's a couple of components. Uh, is, you know, the board, uh, the governance and the structure, I, I must admit, Thing that being listed, but we've done a lot of work uh, beforehand. Things like continuous disclosure, incredibly important. Uh, your governance framework, uh, your risk framework, uh, your remuneration framework, uh, your policy framework, and how they're applied. And they're all words that uh, companies say all the time, but as part of the chairman's role, they need to be applied rigorously for the organisation. And, uh, and our ethos has been. It's not about ticking the box. It's about if you do these things right, culturally it becomes part of your DNA. Uh, the company runs better. Uh, the biggest thing a chairman does is work with the CEO. And Christian and I have a, a great relationship, and also my role is also managing uh, and making sure our board uh, is effective. And we have three uh, independent directors, and then myself and Christian as uh, uh, executive directors. So uh, there's a role of... Uh, uh, managing the overall framework of the organisation uh, and then also creating a, uh, a structure where the executive then has the ability to put its plans and strategic plans in place where uh, the board can then sign off on, on behalf of uh, shareholders. So the executive component for me, with Christian being based in the US, is uh, more focusing on the strategy of the organisation, organisational design, uh, M&A activity um, and dealing with shareholders uh, at the end of the day. So I play two roles. So, so one is the classic chairman role and then my executive component is around strategy, organisational design uh, and, and M&A. And then also working with Christian, him being in the States and me being in Australia, dealing with our uh, shareholder-based but institutional uh, or being retail. So take me through the dealing with the institutions. Is it is it rounds and rounds of meetings? Do you talk to them once a half when you have numbers? How how does that work? I think uh, I think on the, on the, uh, the opening point that all shareholders are treated the same. Uh, uh, and one thing that's really important for a company that every bit of information that a big shareholder has. Uh, a small shareholder should get that uh, should get that information, and they should be able to get similar access as any other shareholder. But that's just has to be done. Uh, one, it's legally required, but two, uh, it's important because uh, small shareholders can become big shareholders, shareholders speak, uh, and if you have a good shareholder base that believes in what you're doing and you deliver on your results, you'll get more shareholders. So, I mean, we have, oh, I think, 400 shareholders, um, you know, with 10 uh, big institutional shareholders, putting aside Christian and myself, who are, are both still major shareholders um, in the company. I mean, we uh, disclosed major shareholders, uh, you know, uh, Regal, uh, Elliston, uh, Perennial uh, and Aussie Super. So names that would resonate with uh, you know, people on your, uh, that, that will listen to this podcast. And then we have a, a list of uh, ordinary shareholders. So what we have to do, we are legally... Uh, have to publish every quarter uh, results called the 4C uh, which shows our cash flow uh, give, give a brief operating uh, update. Uh, at the half and annual we've got to publish uh, results. We've, we've, we've published our half results a little while ago and, and they're on our website and on, on the ASX for people to see. We then 
have uh, sessions where all shareholders can hear our results, and we do that at the half uh, and uh, also uh, uh, at the full year. And then during the course of the year, uh, we happily uh, will speak to institutional shareholders uh, or retail shareholders uh, to give them the brief of the company. Having said that, we will just reinforce messages which have been disclosed already to the marketplace, and nothing will be disclosed that won't be disclosed uh, on the ASX. So. Uh, Christian, myself, and my CFO and my head of uh, investor relations, uh, we're happy to speak uh, to all shareholders at any time. So during the course of the year, you have these formal sessions where all shareholders attend, and during the course of the year, we'll have sessions that would be managed by, say, Morgan Stanley. Uh, we had a session the other day where they, you know, had ten, uh, I think, ten institutions, some are present shareholders, some that are looking at us to hear the company talk. Uh, uh, the other day, I had a small shareholder wanted to have a, a chat, and we're happy to have a, a conversation uh, with him because he just wanted an, an update. So, so we, we tend to be uh, uh, fairly open in terms of having uh, good shareholder dynamic, but also it's important to use things like yes, you publish things on the ASX, but things like LinkedIn, things like your website, things that don't have to legally be disclosed, but just to give a flavour of what's happening to the business. A la on LinkedIn the other day on our website, we just won this. US client, you know, the school with a new product and we put that on LinkedIn and put that on our website and we had a few phone calls, people asking us, oh, what's all this about? That's very exciting. Um, so there's multiple ways in which I communicate uh, with the show, but, but I must admit it, it is uh, a big tax of time uh, of the management uh, to do it, but, but it's part of what you need to do. Uh, and there's a balance uh, of, of how much time you can devote it because shareholders want us to be spending time on the business rather than talking, mm. about, talking about our business all the time. Mm. Yeah, I must admit from the other side, like when I go along to uh, you know, Bailey use uh, with Alex Hay for uh, pre-presentations, it seems like there's almost almost like a yeah, I did go up to or listened into one of yours. Yeah, but I mean, it almost seems like it's a huge time commitment by the executives and non-executive staff to to just go around to all the the uh, banks and investment banks and 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 venues, I guess, to to do these kinds of presentations. Oh, I think that's an issue that all public listed companies struggle with is how much time they can devote it to them. And I said. We're only small, but we're getting bigger. But uh, I think high-quality companies, what they do, and, and shareholders want to see this, is, is that comp- that one you went to, I think, as if uh, our head of products mm. went to it. So we tend to try and share it, depending who the shareholders. So Christian may do one, I may do one, CFO mm. may do one. So you've got to share it among managers. And, and we also take that approach, too, is shareholders want us, while they're, the CEO is the person uh, they want to see because he's the number one person, uh, but they also do want to see other management because that gives them confidence that this company is not single point sensitive. And then also shareholders actually like hearing consistency of messaging from different people rather than the CEO. And I think we've all seen you know, good companies when they perform over time, they tend to have high quality management that individual managers can present to shareholders, just not always the CEO. But having said that, when there's an issue, uh, and when there's leadership, the CEO should be front and centre. And having said that, I think all of us have looked what's happened in Australia in the last two years. You'd argue in some cases that's not always been the case. Mm-hmm. Tell, you said before that you were a major shareholder in Dampshire. Tell me about that side of things. How has how that... Uh, I guess that's been good for you, but but uh, must come with some constraints as well. How do you manage those? Yeah, I suppose, uh, I suppose one thing that other shareholders should be happy is 
I'm totally aligned with them. You know, at the end of the day, I want the company to grow. I wanted to over-deliver on what we promise, and then hopefully uh, our share price increases, and then we all benefit. So I think one of the greatest things is management having equity in the company so they align to shareholders. Uh, and that's something that we're very strong on the board in. So all our board members, uh, pre-IPO or even during the IPO, and I'll give you an example, which... Uh, Simon Yenkin, uh, uh, Ned, uh, he, during the IPO, at the IPO price, you know, put in a million dollars of his own money. And, and I think what shareholders want to see is uh, uh, have the shareholders, uh, you know, got skin in the game and are they actually aligned to the other shareholders? Uh, I think some shareholders have seen in other companies where either board members or executives uh, have no equity in the company. Are they really aligned in terms of uh, shareholder outcome? And if the company doesn't perform, are they? Are they? You know, do they feel the same? And I would say for us, um, you know, myself and Christian, uh, we're obviously investing in the company to get where we are, and you know, we're very happy with our position. But our directors uh, have also put money into the organisation at the, at prices where our investors could have got in at the IPO price or pre-IPO price, and now they're aligned to shareholders. So, so I think, Tony, in one sense, it's, uh, it, creates great it creates great alignment. I think it creates higher accountability too. You know, I, I feel very accountable to the shareholders if uh, if we don't when we're delivering at the moment, but I'm very accountable to them because uh, they want to achieve uh, an investment return just like I want to achieve an investment return. Yeah, it's certainly something that we look at uh, when we invest is, is, you know, is the founder a, a, a major shareholder in the company? So that's a good thing. But I guess what I was thinking of when I asked the question was, uh, we see cases like in uh, Kogan where the, the CEO and the founder sells down shares from time to time and that that's not yeah, can, can be bad uh, from the optics point of view. Um, how, how do you manage that given that you've got a lot of your own wealth tied up in the company? Uh, do you ever like what, what would happen? Uh, what do you how would you manage a case where you needed to take some capital out or you felt it, it was time to maybe dilute your shareholding to sell to, to more institutions? How do you manage that kind of process? Yeah, yeah, I think there's multiple dimensions to that, Tony. Because, uh, I mean, for those who follow Arassi and uh, obviously Canon Books and Farquhar the other day uh, have been selling down, obviously they have a large stake in Arassian. And uh, for those who follow the press, I think each of them indicated to the markets that in the next 12 months they will sell down a couple of percent of their company. But obviously that couple of percent of the company was, I think, it would be valued at like $400 million for each of them. Well, give or take, it might be lower, but the number's very large. I mean, there's an Australian uh, preoccupation with, I think, uh, founders and, and uh, potentially selling down. I think what the markets want to see is they realise that, hey, you're a founder, you get paid a certain amount of money and you should, during the appropriate course of time, uh, have the ability to uh, uh, dilute, to take some money off the table. But what the investors want to understand is, are you selling because there's something wrong with the company? Mm. Are you selling because you have information that we don't have? Mm. So, so I think it's a, a dialogue and it's got to be communicated really well. Christian and I haven't sold uh, uh, any shares and our intention is not to uh, in the near future as we see the growth aspects of the company. Obviously, 
Uh, we will, you know, one day uh, like to take some uh, money off the table. But I think it's how, how you communicate it to, um, and, and when you do it um, at the end of the day. Uh, and I, I don't think there's any perfect way of doing it, but, you know, you know, selling uh, a whole bunch of stock, uh, you know, a month before a major downgrade, uh, if a company would do that, would obviously be an awful scenario mm, yeah. uh, for any company to do. And then shareholders would decide what they do. So, so there's no easy answer, Tony, but it's something we give a lot of thought to and, and we, we see what other companies do. But shareholders want to know, uh, I, I think they really want to know, are you selling with something's going wrong? Yeah. Uh, if you're yeah. going to take some money off the table, this thing has been going really well for a number of years, I, I think most shareholders will go, that's okay. Yep. Okay, understand. And what about outside of Dam Street? Do you have other investments, and are they are they also in high growth SaaS companies, or are they in other areas? I must admit, I used to invest a lot, but uh, uh, I now don't have the time. You know, I mean, you're, you're a professional investor, Tony, and you've done very well over a number of years, and 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 I know, and I've learnt. You know, one once being a young little lad. Uh, uh, using mind and loans to speculate on shares, you know, to really make proper investment decisions, you've got to be, you know, you've got to have the time to invest in companies. And, and I think for myself, for my family, or for my shareholders, I spend most of my time uh, on Damstra uh, and any investments that I have outside are, are very vanilla, you know, uh, you know, index funds, et cetera, because right. I just can't devote the time to analysing companies. So, so shareholders can be happy from my perspective that, you know, uh, my, my biggest investment, uh, is Damster, and that's the thing that I spend all you know the majority of my time on. Yeah, fair enough. That's that's good. Well, Jan, thank you very much. That's a great insight into uh, into the growth story of Damster, and good luck to you, uh, Cam. Do you have any uh, questions you'd like to chip in as well? Oh yeah, I, I just want to ask Jan what uh, what Tony was like twenty years ago. Jan, <laughs> what was he like when he was a young fella? He's still the same, mate. He's still the same. Hey, he was an investor then, and he always—and I must admit, Tony's always been an investor. He's always spent a lot of time looking at what Warren Buffett does and what the great investors of the world uh, world does. He was an investor in a small sense, and he's continued to do that. So I think Tony is a, a, an insightful person in terms of understanding companies, understanding uh, management. Uh, he likes resources, and he likes a good time. And uh, uh, I think uh, Tony's advice in investment areas. Uh, if anyone, um, I know he's got a number of subscribers, uh, uh, should be well listened to. I think his performance over a long period of time uh, speaks for itself uh, yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah. yeah, thanks, mate. What did you think when you heard that he was going to leave to become a leave work to become a full time investor? Oh, I just thought he was going to do it. <laughs> I just thought he was going to do it. Yeah, he always had a high analytical mind, and um, and might be talking at a school. So Tony was actually. Uh, uh, very sophisticated in the punting area many, many years ago, Tony, remember? Uh, and, and I always used to have discussions with him. About, and it was all about analytics, though. It was about modeling. Yeah. It was about looking yeah. for trends, uh-huh. and looking for that gap that other investors weren't taking. So it wasn't about punting, just putting a bet down. It was about uh, going through a, a process and then seeing that gap in the marketplace and taking it. And then he did tell me that the market closed on him and then he stopped doing it. Uh, but he's always been like that. So when he told me he was going to be an investor, it never surprised me because it was always his DNA. Yeah. 
Yeah, true. He's laughing. He's laughing. He's, I am. He, yeah, he, that's he, true. Maybe he's never told. But maybe he's got to do a session on uh, his punting uh, <laughs> exports many, many well, years my ago. Understanding, <laughs> my understanding is that his, his punting today isn't that successful. <laughs> it's fun to buy and, the investing. Yeah, I, should, I should say, Jan and I, Jan and I are partners in, a, in our thoroughbred operation that we breed and race racehorses through, which is uh, having a bit of success at the moment, which is good. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, more more wins than losses. And, and, I, and I must admit, and I must admit, and, and but I must admit, but Tony takes a very analytical view of that too. It's about we breed horses. <laughs> he looks at uh, the breeding of horses, the mares, the stallions, where we should match it. You know mm-hmm. what horses we should acquire. So uh, he takes uh, an investment methodology to uh, how we own race horses too. Yeah. So he has two nicknames on this podcast that have evolved over time. Yeah, one is the Ice Man. Because he has, uh, he's all analytics, no emotion. It's just look at the numbers, and uh, not very good for people trying to pitch uh, an SAAS company. By the way, he's always like, if I want to hear a story, I'll read a book. Uh, and the uh, other nickname is Saint Anthony. He's the uh, he's the patron saint of uh, investors. So they just just you can take that away with you. That's something you can use. Uh, for yourself. So thanks very much for coming on and chatting. That was fascinating stuff, uh, Jan. I really appreciate it. No, thanks, guys. Good to speak yeah, to you. No, thanks, mate. That was great. Really, really uh, helpful and, and loved every minute of it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Good to speak. Speak again. Okay, mate. Bye. Bye. Cheers, mate. All right. Well, uh, did he convince you, Tony, to invest in SAAS <laughs> stocks, SAS, software as a service stocks? Are you convinced? No. You went fairly light on him. I was expecting you to go all Alan Kohler on him there. but uh. <laughs> Well, he is a friend and a partner. Um, no, I thought, I thought it was interesting that uh, a lot of the stuff he was saying is things that we've been saying, like the investors take a portfolio approach and they hope they get the 50 bagger from one of them and, and the, it pays for the rest. So yes. that, that makes sense to me. Yeah. 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 Yeah, they, um, they... I should I should disclose I do have some shares in Damstra. When Yarn was floating, he was kind enough to add me to his his IPO list, so I do have some shares in Damstra. Well, I had a look at my their own... share price this my... morning. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope you got them at a good price. <laughs> oh man, it's a volatile it's a volatile ride, isn't it? Gosh. Well, it is for everything, but uh, you know, so they floated it looks like at a dollar 13 went up to a dollar 19 dropped down to 65 cents during the covid correction back up to about 93 cents today yeah it actually floated at 90 cents the dollar 13 was the first the first uh, trade yeah first right listing. yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so if you got them at 90 cents and they're at 93 yeah uh, you're above water yeah which a lot of people aren't over that time period because they floated towards the end of last year. Right. If people bought yeah. them on the first day, they're underwater. They're underwater. But Correct. Who knows? Um, so, uh, yeah, the portfolio approach, as you, as you say, it was when, you know, you go buy 10, 20 dot-com stocks uh, and you, you hope that one or two of them do well. At least. Yeah, exactly. Over the long term. And the interesting, interesting thing for me about that is that, of course, Yarn can't be a portfolio investor, which is why I was asking him about outside investments, because he's 100% all in on one company. Yeah, yeah. Whereas his investors are, you know, 10% in on 10 companies or 5% in on 20 companies. A very different approach. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, he's got yeah. to, he's got to make this one work. Exactly. Yeah. So it's uh, that's that's the reason for investing like that and looking for companies like that because the management's very motivated. Yeah. Well, they we would pass at least that uh, on the checklist. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Owners, chairmen's with buy-in. Uh, yeah. Don't know how it'd go on the rest of the checklist, but at least it'd get a point for that. <laughs> All yeah. right. Well, thanks for getting yarn on. That was uh, really, really interesting, um, and particularly, you know, you, because you guys have known each other a long time. Ooh. Yeah, we've been mates for ages. We're, you know, I think well, I don't know how old I was, and maybe uh, mid to late twenties when we first uh, hooked up at Shell. Yeah, we've had a lot of fun together too along the way. It's been great. Oh, yeah. I bet. Yeah, <laughs> in your wild days couple of young lads with some money in Brisbane it was lots of fun (laughs) (laughs) all right well um, thanks mate and I'll I guess we'll talk next week in Uh, uh, Sydney yes do we have something on Friday as well don't we with Elio we do we do have Elio on Friday you're right thanks okay well I'll talk to you then uh, and then I'll just 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 one thing sorry some of the questions Mm. we bumped yesterday might have some time constraints on them I think someone was asking you about uh, what they should do about a uh, share raising. All right. Do you want to take five minutes and touch on that now? Yeah, sure. Why don't we do that? It won't take long. I I know Chrissy's Chrissy's got a student coming in eight minutes, so um, we've got to get in and out pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, This is Stephen's question. Yes, that's right. Yep. Uh, well, I think there's there's two. There was Stephen and there was one from Peter. But anyway, we'll take take Stephen's first. Stephen was talking about Credit Corp. Yep. Uh, so so without giving um, advice, the uh, I think Stephen Main's discussion about uh, capital raisings was was pretty good, and he was basically saying you you apply for the shares that you can because the the share price generally goes up following following the the share raising. Uh, it's it's seen as being a good thing for the company that they've raised more capital and they have to do it at a discount to entice people to invest. So uh, I guess you know, if, you, if you adopt that kind of point of view, then yes, invest in the company. The company in question that was uh, Stephen asked about was Credit Corp, which I think is a good company. So I have no uh, problems investing. The only, only thing I'll, I'll mention about Credit Corp is it's not in a three-point buy situation at the moment. So you're investing based on the quality of the company rather than where the trend is but the the thing about uh, the credit corp raising is it is it is the shares are currently being offered at, at a discount and they they are, uh, have baked in a discount so even if the share price drops during the capital raising you're still going to get a two and a half percent discount uh, to the five day weighted average share price and that's called a VWAP volume weighted average share price so you should you should get at least a two and a half percent discount so it's worthwhile doing uh, the other thing to note is that uh, Stephen said he opted from a minimum buy-in of a thousand dollars and uh, he, he may or may not get all of that so that's something to take into account is that there'll there'll be a scale back or there usually is a scale back in these these share placements so uh, if you if you apply for a thousand dollars you might only get a few shares and and your money is tied up for a a couple of weeks while they go through the process 
Um, you usually get it back pretty quickly, but you won't probably get $1,000 worth of shares. So that's something else to take into account in that if you wanted to get $1,000 worth of shares, you probably have to apply for a lot more than just $1,000. So uh, yeah, I think that's probably an answer to Stephen's questions about Credit Corp. Uh, and there was another question following that about um, Alliance Aviation from Peter. Uh, similar sort of thing. I, uh, I, don't, I used to own shares in Alliance Aviation years ago. I don't at the moment, and they don't meet our QAV test, so I'm not as familiar with it now. Basically, Alliance Aviation is a, an airline that uh, has most or a lot of its business in fly-in, fly-out workers. So it's, it's probably done okay during the COVID situation, given the mines are still operating. So uh, they've been flying and flying out, although I know that... Uh, in WA when they closed the border and probably also in Queensland, uh, the workers had to move to WA. So a lot of people worked uh, moved to Perth, which would have um, had some kind of impact on Alliance Aviation, but they're probably still flying people from Perth up to Port Hedland and Caratha anyway, but I'm, I'm not that familiar with it. Similar sort of question, uh, Pete's asking what should he look out for? Uh, and a similar answer. Just, uh, I'm just going to call up quickly the Alliance Aviation deal. Similar sort of one to Credit Corp. They've given you a price of 295 uh, or uh, a 2% discount to the five-day VWAP of Alliance shares. So you can decide whether uh, you, you whether which one works out best. It's going to be the lower of those two, uh, but you're at least going to get a 2% discount. And so you can make your application accordingly, knowing that there'll be a scale back of some kind. So if you want, for example, $1,000 worth of shares, apply for more. Okay. None of that's financial advice, but let me ask you uh, a quick question on that. So you mentioned before, I think with Credit Corp, that it doesn't pass the QAV checklist. So if I'm looking at uh, an opportunity for one of these uh, capital raisings and participating in it, uh, how do I think about that in terms of the checklist? So do I just take what I think the offer price is going to be and use that and run the checklist? And then if it gets a negative QAV, if it doesn't get a positive QAV score, I just don't participate? Or, is, or are there different rules when you're thinking about a capital raising? Yeah, good point. I, the, first of all, I'm very rarely involved in capital raisings because most of our companies you know, high quality ones and they don't they don't need to raise capital. On the odd occasion when it has happened, and sometimes it does, particularly in the mining space, yeah, I'll look at it and say, is this a company I want to be buying right now? And uh, if it isn't, and then I won't participate. Uh, it, it um, you, you can, however, take a short-term trading mindset and say, well, okay, uh, I did participate in one, for example, uh, Northern Star Rant. I think it may even have been pre-COVID. So it was probably just to expand uh, their minds. Uh, I participated in that because the share price was something like $12 at the time the offer was made and the the uh, the offer price was around $9. These, these figures are rough, but you can see that there was a, a short-term profit to be made. So so you can take you can take a trading mentality to this if the if you I was invested in Northern Star, it's still a good company, but it's it's above our buy price. But uh, the discount was enough for me to, to say, okay, I'm going to invest some more in this company. So that's, that's more of a trading sort of mentality to it. Right, which doesn't sound like you. That's oh, a- you, get, you can't just look, you can't rule out opportunities, though, to make right. 25% in, in a, a few weeks. That was a, a good deal. Right, okay. 
yeah, but, I knew the company. It just was the, it just was that the price didn't meet our normal buy criteria, but it's still a good company. Right. So it still has to get through the checklist, really. Uh, if it was, if it was the case that say Northern Star was trading at twelve dollars and offering the the raising at eleven dollars fifty, then I probably wouldn't buy into it because it didn't meet the checklist. But mm. because it was a company I already owned, it met the checklist in terms of the quality side, but not the buy price, and mm. the discount was was you know twenty five percent. Then yeah, sure, I, I right. bought into it. But it met, it met the quality side of things, uh, and then there was just enough upside with the offer yeah. that it made sense. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Thanks, TK. Mm. Thanks, Iceman. Okay. St. Anthony. Right. We'll, uh, I'll talk to you <laughs> later in the week. Okay. Cheers, mate. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye.